HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bintotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. Hi there, I'm Yom, host of Item 13, an African food podcast. I'm excited to be joining the Heritage Radio Network this year as we kick off our fourth season of the podcast. On Item 13, we cover all aspects of the African food ecosystem. You will hear West Africans squabble over who has the best jollof. Newsflash, it's Ghana. It's time to celebrate our jollof. Like we are done with comparing who and who did what. Yeah. And jollof is not just about even the rice, it's about the protein that goes with it. Guests share their expertise on African food ingredients and spices. This is a region where, you know, even if you look at 18th century maps, you know, you had something called the Pepper Coast. Fresh and aromatic peppers. That is what distinguishes West Africa. Tips on marketing food businesses. A good way to engage your audience is to take them on that journey. You know, get them talking about this idea you have. That way you are engaging them. They are engaging with each other. And you're getting useful insights that you can then pull from and use to develop your recipe. This season, my goal is to focus on more stories outside of English-speaking West Africa. So you'll hear stories from Benin, from Uganda, Liberia, and even Haiti. You'll also hear us discuss the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and how COVID-19 has impacted some of the businesses featured on the show. You can catch up now on previous episodes of Item 13, wherever you listen to podcasts, and join us this season as we debut on HRN. Thank you. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Victoria James. We'll talk to Victoria about her new book, Wine Girl, and more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. 
Victoria James is an award-winning sommelier and the beverage director at Michelin-starred Coat Korean Steakhouse in New York City. Victoria's road to success was not an easy one, as documented in her new memoir, Wine Girl, The Obstacles, Humiliations, and Triumphs of America's Youngest Sommelier. It is an intense story of a childhood plagued by poverty, neglect, and abuse, and ultimately her uneasy ascension into the wine world as a woman. Victoria's life was shaped by guys like Antonio, Cisco, Frankie, Enzo, and Renard, and women that were countesses and cotton pickers. Buckle up for a wild ride. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Victoria. Thank you for having me. Actually, welcome back. You were on <laughs> when you wrote uh, your book about rosé. Yes, Drink Pink. Uh, yes. Seems like years ago now. And I think when we're done with this interview, I could say before the interview, when you write your third book, your novel, that I will invite you back then. How's that? Sounds great, Sam. Thank you. All right. So due to the COVID-19 virus, we're doing a remote broadcast via Zencaster. Where are you right now, Victoria? I'm at my apartment here in Manhattan. Okay. So you're in New York City. I am at the beach in Fire Island. Nice. Um, Victoria, I always open the show asking my guests to give us a brief background on their journey in life and wine. Your journey in life and wine is really the whole premise and discussion of this interview. Um, it's your memoir, Wine Girl. So your story is amazing, and I want to get right into it. So the book is divided or chaptered by age in increments. So let's start, you know, with Victoria as a young girl. Let's start with your family and your upbringing as a child, because I think this had an incredible effect on you. And it's really the foundation of the book. So take it wherever you want and, you know, bring me up to about when you're 13 and, you know, let's discuss the diner. Sure. Thanks, Sam. So, you know, I... You do recognize that writing a memoir before the age of 30 is uh, quite a presumptuous endeavor. And, you know, the whole reason I decided to finally put what was originally a bunch of stories and diaries and journals together for to create this book was to help other young women who have maybe not had the most ideal childhoods or have gone through a lot of abuse or neglect and just to kind of give them hope as well that, you know, great things are possible. So, uh, you know, around five years ago, uh, I realized I had this collection of diaries from childhood and also some journal entries that I scrolled down throughout my career in restaurants. And I started to put this book together and I realized that although it would be nice perhaps for myself uh, to spare the emotional burden of just skipping over the childhood and going right to my restaurant career. As you mentioned, Sam, uh, I think that my childhood did lay the foundation in many ways for my restaurant career. And one of the most common questions I get is, well, how does one become a sommelier at 21 when you're just legally allowed to drink at 21? So obviously extraordinary things happened before them that led to that. So, you know, it was, uh, probably the most challenging thing to write about my childhood, my parents, my siblings, and what we went through. But overall, it became quite healing. Uh, my grandmother on my dad's side was a cotton picker, a cotton picker rather, in Tennessee, as you mentioned. And my mother's mother was a countess from Italy. And so I grew up with this sort of blue, blue blood meets a uh, blue collar. And cool. <laughs> yeah, and learned that, you know, one's 
social class does not define one's character. Uh, but when I was quite young, uh, I was separated from my mother when I was seven years old by my father. And it was a very challenging time afterwards. And he suffered from alcoholism. And beforehand, my mother suffered from severe depression. And, you know, we would often go weeks at time without a proper meal. And Jesus. Uh, afterwards, it, it was it was very challenging because I, you know, was not I had no exposure prior to this uh, to alcohol. And we grew up in a very Christian household and we're told that alcohol was this, um, you know, uh, evil thing. And so when it suddenly swiftly entered our household, um, it was a very scary thing. And, and my father then, in addition to drinking, got into gambling and, um, you know, to try to try and escape a lot of the abuse that was happening at home. I, I wanted some sort of sort of independence, and there was this diner in our town, uh, the Greasy Spoon, and um, this is New Jersey, right? Yes, in New Jersey, famous for diners. Famous for diners, the diner state, right? Certainly more than the Garden State, <laughs> right? And so I just, you know, this was such a novel concept because we never went out to restaurants. We didn't have any money. And uh, to be able to work at a place where I had previously never gone um, seemed so magical. And I quickly realized that working in diners was a way to sort of hide in plain sight and also escape uh, the difficulties of home. And I loved feeling useful and uh, having friends, even if they were two, three times my age, you know, at school, it was, it was pretty hard to make friends. We, we came from this low income household and, uh, you know, we were bullied quite often. So, you know, it sort of felt like the restaurants and Anthony Bourdain talks about this was a place for misfits. And, you know, I, I fit in with the misfits. And this was, you were 13, right? 13. Yes. Right. And let's just backtrack a little. I mean, one of the important things and nice things is that you were always a good student you somewhat took it seriously and you did well, true? Yeah, I think it was one of the few ways in which I had control. Um, you know, kids could make fun of us at school for having sneakers with holes in the bottom, but they couldn't call us stupid, um, myself and my siblings as well. And so we always strove to be the smartest and best in our class. It was sort of all we had. Yeah. Now, which is sort of a backbone, you know, to your later successes, you know, having you know, the intelligence and the ability and the discipline. Um, when you got to the diner, you were introduced to some interesting people, which I'd love you to talk about. It it seems to me like it opened your eyes to hospitality. And some of these guys shaped, you know, your thinking in life and in the business. True? True. I think that, uh, you know, very quickly, uh, when I was 13 working at this Greasy Spoon Diner, I met two of the most important people in any restaurant, and certainly this one, and that was the dishwasher and the cook, uh, the people who have the hardest jobs in the restaurant. And Antonio and Cisco, um, you know, they were they were quite uh, intimidating at first to a 13-year-old girl. They seemed <laughs> very... <laughs> <laughs> they seem very scary and yeah. uh, uh, loud and, uh, you know, so, but it was one day that I did actually connect with them and I realized they were quite lovely people, but it sort of shaped me and uh, made me realize that these are the people you should befriend before anyone else. Uh, they're sort of the foundation of the whole restaurant. And then later, 
uh, working at another diner uh, in New Jersey, when we moved, I met someone named Frankie who, you know, introduced me to his love cycle, which was a way to, a way to find a way to love anyone and not just in a superficial way, but to kind of see every guest or client customer as a human being. And when you do that, it changes the way you serve them. It, it, it's sort of the foundation of what hospitality really is. So when he, when he told you about that and he did it and he showed you how it was done, I mean, you agreed and bought into it. I mean, it seemed like a fair tactic or a way to approach people. I think, I mean, anyone who has ever worked in customer service knows that it's a hard job. And it's a hard job, especially in restaurants, uh, where you're often not compensated well, and the environment can be quite challenging. And so where do you find purpose in that? And where do you, where do you get the strength to keep going on day after day, guest after guest? And for me, it was the most fulfilling thing. It almost is, I mean, it is quite addicting, actually, because when you're good to someone and when you make them happy, you find you're happy in return. And uh, that's the whole cyclical part of the love cycle. You right. give love to someone else and you get it in return. And as someone who had rarely felt that as a child in, in my household, it was very fulfilling. Is that the realization that you knew, you know, hospitality, even at the form of the diner, was something that interested you i mean you didn't have much else going but that seemed like a good thing i mean it was that the foundation again there yeah i don't think i considered working in hospitality in the future i never thought at that time that i would go on to become a sommelier i didn't even know what that word meant right i thought i was saving up money to go to college and but i just i loved it and i loved restaurants and it wasn't until later where i realized it could actually even be a career yeah. I want to talk about, you know, that very important slice, more than a slice, but, you know, where wine entered and how you approached it. But I think what separates this book, you know, from other books and, you know, your life and your honesty is, um, you know, it's not hard to understand that at that age you were vulnerable. <laughs> and like you said, you were hanging around with people twice your age and trying to escape your family. Um, there's a story that you chose, you know, to put in the book about somewhat of a regular customer, you know, where you interacted and it became, you know, a very terrible experience. You don't have to get vivid about it, but it's, it's truly, you know, a, a shocking thing, what happened, how it happened, and, you know, kind of how you you kind of moved along and put it aside. I mean, talk to me about that as much as you want. Yeah, I think that was probably uh, undoubtedly the hardest thing to write about. Uh, you know, I was using Frankie's love cycle and uh, making guests happy. And in return, I felt happy. And so, you know, there was a downside to that, which was really hard to grapple with. And I think that certain people can take advantage of, you know, someone's youth and vulnerabilities. And I had this one regular guest who, um, you know, after work offered me a ride home. And then what turned 
what's what seemed innocent turned into a very scarring night and uh you know I was actually raped by him and I think that you know unfortunately I had no choice but to put it aside and and move on and uh, you know most women understand to some degree what that feels like you normalize it because there's nothing else to do. I mean, one in four women in North America are raped in their lifetime. It's unfortunately, unfortunately, increasingly common. And the only way to combat this is to talk about it more and to use our voices to understand, to help other women understand that they're, that they're not alone and that something needs to be done about these predators. And you were how old then? I mean, that's part of the shocking part. I was 15. Yeah. Now, you have two sisters and a brother? Uh, I have three sisters and a brother. Three sisters and a brother. I knew I missed something. And (laughs) after that happened, I mean, I really encourage people to buy and read the book. And, you know, this part is, you know, you're fairly vivid about it. You know, when you walked out of the car and went home, I mean, you didn't talk to anybody, even your oldest sister, right? I mean, it's just something you internalized. It's something I internalized because I felt like I had no one to turn to. Uh, my mom, we didn't live with her anymore. My father was suffering with not uh, the guy drinking. You know, I, I come in after you know after being raped, and he's passed out on the couch, drunk. <sighs> right. You know, so it's not there's not really a lot to turn to. And my older sister is not included in the book for many reasons. Uh, so she obviously was not someone I could go to. Right. And then I just had my younger siblings who I was close to, but I felt like too I had young. to protect them and they're too young. So who would I, who would I turn to? And, and, and there was really no one I could trust with this. Right. It's a hard uh, thing to carry. Um, I want to move on on this, but I want to ask you one more thing. And I hate to ask this question as a guy, um, but and you you answered it to some extent, and some extent is obvious, but it's really the second question on this that I want to get to. You know, why and how do you put yourself, you know, in vulnerable positions like this? And from experiences, you know, what advice can you give to women or young girls? Yeah, I think that during those times, you or I felt so alone and like there was no one to turn to. And and really in retrospect, it was, it's, it's hard to put the burden on the young women, but you know, if you can, uh, you know, go to the police station, report it. It's, it's really important to do so. I wish I had at the time, I wish I had that strength and foresight, but I just, I didn't. And I was scared. Uh, But I think that it's not just, advice to young women. I think it's advice to the whole community. And if you have a sister, a daughter, a, a mother, a, you know, a friend, that's a woman that you care about, you know, do let them know that if anything like this ever happened, that they could come to you for help and support. Uh, a lot of women feel alone. Uh, right. most so women feel alone. Don't internalize and act it literally, like you said, go to the police or go to somebody, you know, that you feel you can talk to, but do it. Right. Yeah, and to those that surround these women, make them feel as if they can come to you. Yes, yes. Um, You know, this wasn't a question, but I thought of it. I mean, you had this kind of warm feeling about your grandparents. Those were people you couldn't go to? 
Unfortunately, at the time they had already passed away. Oh, okay. That's my bad for not the time. <laughs> but would, okay. would you have? I mean, based on the type of people they were, were, did they fit, you know, the description of somebody you could comfortably go to? Yeah, I mean, I think I, it's hard to say, but um, that would have been ideal. I think that, you know, I also had aunts that were wonderful and, you know, in retrospect, I should have told them as well, right. but it's hard. I think that also in the household I grew up with, we were told to, especially the women that we had to kind of internalize our pains and our struggles. And I watched my mother suffer from uh, right. depression and mental illness. And, and my father, you know, let her know that that's unacceptable um, to be a good Christian woman was to be silent. So, right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard. <laughs> Nothing was going your way as far as the best way to handle that, unfortunately. And unfortunately, and we'll talk about it a little, it's not the thrust of this interview, but problems like this persisted throughout your career. Let's talk about, um, and, and your childhood is, you know, way more complex and interesting and, you know, crazy than the time we spent on it. You really get into your relationships, you know, with your siblings and the effect your dad had, you know, particularly on your brother and all that. Um, but, but, you know, we covered that pretty well. Walk me through your hospitality career. But before we get to that, and on your hospitality career, you were young and there was somewhat of a quick ascension at some good places. But the question I have for you is, you know, when was that first exposure to wine and when did you realize, you know what, I want to spend a little more time, you know, pursuing this, reading it, I'm intrigued. You know, when was that? And that answer may fall into the hospitality timeline. Yeah, I was bartending during college, uh, studying psychology at Fordham University and working at a uh, small little Italian place on Restaurant Row called Latanzi. And ne I next to Becco. Next to Becco, yes, right. indeed. Uh, so I, you know, really just thought kind of bartending was like being a server at first. I thought, you know, you had an order and you fulfilled it. But there was something about wine that seemed, you know, I was too young, too poor, and definitely the wrong gender for uh, everyone at the restaurant, you know, were older men. And they had this, or at the time, I thought they were filled with knowledge about this subject that I didn't understand. So, you know, almost by happenstance, I found this dusty copy of Wine for Dummies behind the register when I was cleaning the bar. And uh, I thought, well, I, this is something I definitely could use. And I was so studious and loved absorbing information like a sponge. So I started reading Wine for Dummies and in a weekend was done and wanted more. And so I picked up the Wine Bible and um, by Karen McNeil. And then all of a sudden, I realized that this wasn't just a beverage. This wasn't just, you know, the alcohol my father had gotten drunk on wine was, it was complicated and it seemed to combine so many of my interests of history and travel and studying and of course, hospitality. So it sort of just clicked. And I don't know if at the time I still knew it could be a career, but I wanted to learn more. So I researched more about wine and came across the word sommelier. Uh, first, I Googled how to even pronounce that right. and what that was, but I learned it was a job, which was incredible, but I was only 19 at the time. So, you know, I snuck into a few wine tastings and classes 
and then become became transfixed. And so I deferred for a semester at school and then deferred for another semester. And soon I found that I never went back. But part, um, so a couple things. You were at Latanzi. You were a bartender. Your gateway book was Wine for Dummies, right? Yes. yes. How old were you and what year was that? Uh, I was 19. So it was 2009. Okay. Um, so you became very self-motivated and passionate about wine, right? Yes, absolutely. So tell me, let's just take a minute to talk about, so here's a person that's interested in wine, didn't know what a sommelier meant, you know, knew nothing and enters into the wine world, which we'll get into has its own problems. But, you know, what were your, some of your experiences, you know, when you got into wine education and the world of wine? So I wanted to learn more, and I spent the next couple of years doing that before I could legally become a sommelier at 21. And so I searched for wine classes in New York and came upon this organization, um, in which I did take classes. And then after that, I also wanted more experience. So during this time, while I was studying and taking these classes, I became a cellar rat or a cellar hand down at Harry's at Hanover Square which uh, has an incredible wine collection. And my job was to sort of inventory it and organize it while I was also bartending there. So, you know, I was really kind of burning the candles at both ends. But Victoria, it's fair to say the wine collection at Harry's is like a guy coming out of minor league baseball and starting for the Yankees, right? I mean, the vastness (laughs) of that collection is, you know, unique in New York. Quite. I don't, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Still to I mean, day. you know, let's put that in context. <laughs> right, so you're seller at Harry's. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, not at all. So I seller at Harry's, you know, the many people have said the collection is priceless, but if you did have to put a price on it, it was probably around 8 million. To give you context, my restaurant now, which is Michelin starred restaurant, has over 1,200 selections on the wine list. Uh, you know, it's probably only worth a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, so <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss why, but go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, that is a huge, huge seller we're talking about, and it was worth four floors. And so it was a very daunting task, but I loved being in the cellar. I loved learning about these bottles, holding them, seeing the these beautiful labels. But I quickly learned that the wine world was also very toxic and had its problems. Uh, there was an instructor at the school where I was studying that um, was just misogynistic and and terrible. And there's a lot of corruption there, which only continued throughout my sommelier career and within education. And also my uh, one of my bosses at Harry's was incredibly uh, abusive. And, um, you know, uh, there was... Uh, multiple cases of sexual harassment. So it was almost as if everywhere I turned, I couldn't escape the abuse, even though I really loved this world and wanted to be a part of wine. And there was no structure anywhere to, you know, take it up with HR or management. That was the culture, right? The culture was terrible. There was no HR. Uh, I didn't know who I could report it to. I mean, once... Uh, you know, I did mention something to one 
three of the investors actually who are part owners and they all kind of just laughed and said, well, good for that guy. You know, I mean, this was, this was the definition of an old boys club. Uh, These were everyone, this was in wall street, you know? And so uh, women were seen as commodities and uh, I was encouraged as a bartender to dress, uh, dress, you know, be scantily clad and entertain these guys. And they would, turn the air conditioning down to 55 degrees in the room so that all the men in suits were comfortable, but the women wearing almost nothing behind the bar were shivering. And, and it was just an environment that was not conducive to, uh, to women. Yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, take me through the career a little. So you get early exposure at a young age at Harry's, which has a crazy wine list you know, thus begins sort of the culture, which is toxic and, you know, the abusiveness, you know, of the male, you know, wine world. Um, So how long do you stay at Harry's and where do you go after? So I stayed at Harry's um, until I was 21. And I worked a harvest in California, which was also very enlightening, learning about how wine is really made. And that kind of really, really sparked my um, passion to become a sommelier and to become more involved in this wine world. But I didn't really know where to turn or how to even do that. And the culture at Harry's was becoming more and more unbearable and I had to get out. So I applied to a bunch of different places in New York and miraculously, it seemed, I got a position at what was then at the time before it closed uh, a Michelin starred restaurant called Oriole, which was between Bryant Park and Times Square run by uh, chef Charlie Palmer. Right. And that you, you go from this huge wine list and wall street institution to now even finer dining Michelin starred. So you would think, well, life should get better, right? The environment shouldn't be too bad. Well, that's what I kept thinking. I thought, you know, when I walked into this place, talk about intimidating, you know, the pressed tablecloths and the tiny little spoons and the shiny glassware. I thought it was like heaven. Um, But, and I had no idea that something called steps of service even existed or mise en place. And, uh, but, you know, I seemed, I thought that the better the place, you know, the better the environment and actually seemed quite the opposite. And the further I climbed in my career, it seemed the worse it became. And, you know, it was a good, you know, there's, there's good and bads to each situation. And I learned quickly quite a bit about fine dining in this whole world. And I then also at 21 passed my certified sommelier exam, but it was just such a challenging place to work long work weeks that um, again was, it was filled with just a really toxic environment. I mean, really toxic, abusive bosses, you know, that continued to act, you know, to things that were common to you in the past. True. Yeah. I mean, I think that happened uh, later as well in my career. And again, you sort of normalize this in general. And it, it wasn't just the people who were supposed to protect me. It was the guests as well. And I think one problem nowadays with dining is this slogan, the customer is always right, uh, still reigns supreme. I think the customer is often not right. And, you know, when you even put them on that pedestal, it can become dangerous. Uh, 
the customer is a customer and they should be treated with love and respect. And in turn, the customer should also treat those who serve them with love and respect. But unfortunately, that that's, didn't Frank, exist. that's Frankie talking. That's Frankie talking. But, but so let, let's, you know, we don't have to get too deep into it. But, you know, I think people understand and they'll understand more in the book, the toxicity of this, you know, industry and your experiences, you know, tell me how it translates or it crosses over to the customer. I mean, tell me some of the things. I mean, I think being a woman was, you know, made you a bigger target. But I think just there were a lot of assholes out there, right? A lot of assholes, for sure. And I think that, you know, when a young woman, especially, uh, who is- You could say it, attractive. Uh, I, you know, yes, yeah, certainly attractive as well. And I think that, you know, beauty can be power, but it can also be a detriment as well, especially when there's no one in charge protecting women. And, and I see this still in restaurants all the time. We hire attractive women to be these faces, uh, hostesses, uh, coat check women, right. bartenders, sommeliers, but we don't protect them. Uh, and what are restaurants doing to protect these women who are especially vulnerable? So, you know, a lot of these men, I mean, it would be maybe as as simple as using really, really horrible language and trying to solicit sex from me and slapping my ass um, all the way to, you know, there's this horrible thing that happens to me later when I was working at a different restaurant, Morea, where the guests actually roofied me and put, um, you know, these drugs in wine that they made me taste, you know, so it people have to understand the customer is not always right. Oftentimes they can be quite wrong. Yeah. I mean, right in those few sentences, you explained, you know, a few things, physical, emotional, and, you know, being drugged about as bad as you can get. Um, the other thing that I also realize is that there were women in any in the industry and you'd think you'd find solace in other women, but they were equally as bad as men at times. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, there are good and bad in both men and women. And unfortunately in the wine world, it's so male dominated, this old boys club. And so there are a few positions available, it seems for women, uh, I mean, there are very few women who run Michelin starred restaurants who run wine programs. And so I think it's almost drilled into some of our heads that we have to be competitive with one another in order to get these roles, which means that there can be a lot of uh, backstabbing and, yeah. and just and cruelty. Yeah. Um, so a few more things. Get me out of Oriole and let's, you know, discuss Maria for a minute or two. Um, but at some point, and when is this? Is it Oriole? Is it Maria that you've endured enough, you know, BS from your bosses, you know, that you determined you would never let, you know, another boss or man touch you again? So weave me out of Oriole into Maria, you know, and how you realize this has got to end. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I f finally got that courage later uh, in my career, but I it was really done with with Oriole and uh, my boss, uh, who was the wine director at Oriole, who's actually lovely, a, a lovely human being, was leaving. And he was sort of the only one I trusted there, you know, to protect me. And he was leaving. So I was like, I'm definitely getting the hell out of here. So I applied to the Alta Morea group for starting by opening the restaurant, Ristrante Marini on the Upper East Side, which has since closed. And 
was full of a whole host of problems, uh, and then to their flagship Morea on Central Park South. So uh, with this group, I certainly, you know, ascended to now two Michelin stars. And at the time, Maria had two Michelin stars. Now they only have one. But, you know, I I was on this different level where if someone ordered a $250 bottle of wine, they were penny pinchers or cheapskates. It was very different from anywhere I had worked before. And, uh, you know, we are bringing in millions and millions of dollars every year in wine sales. And so... You're also dealing now with the 1%, and with that comes its own slew of um, uh, interesting stories, which you can find in the book. Right. But it wasn't until later when I actually uh, was let go from Maria for uh, you know a variety of reasons, which I talk about in the book, that I finally stop and think, what do I want from life? I'd been going so fast. I was, you know, only 25 at the time. And I had already worked at all these Michelin starred restaurants. I was already a sommelier. It seems I had achieved so much, but I was burnt out and uh, depressed. And so it took me a while to kind of step back and uh, go see a therapist and realize what it was that I wanted from life. And that's when I met uh, Simon Kim from Piora. And that's when everything changed. And that's when I started finally working in a healthy place. All right, so Victoria, we have to take a quick break. Um, I'm talking to Victoria James. Victoria is the author of her newish book, Wine Girl, and she's the beverage director at uh, Old Korean Steakhouse, Steakhouse in New York. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Bin subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious, single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Ben to Table box subscription. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month, and Ben to Table will donate $10 to HRN. We're back. We're back with my guest, Victoria James. We're talking about her new book, Wine Girl. And we're at the point where she's ascended in the hospitality industry at high-end restaurants. And I think, Victoria, we're at a point where you've gained some good experience. You realize the toxicity in the industry. And it was important. you took some time off, and it was important for you find the right people and the environment and that was Simon Kim 
who was at Piora, P-I-O-R-A. Um, what, you know, impact did Simon have on your life? What was the environment you were walking into? You know, how did that change things? So after Maria, I went on so many different interviews and it seemed, it was just, it felt very degrading. Every place I went seemed just more toxic than the last. And Same yeah. crap? Same crap. Yeah. You know, different Unbelievable. name. Unbelievable, yeah. And, you know, I, this is just, it's so prevalent in fine dining and it just, it felt like every place was just, 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 I didn't want to work for any of these places. And I thought maybe I'm, did I fall out of love with restaurants? It's, I didn't want it to be true. And and then I finally met Simon and everything was different. Just walking into the restaurant, Piora, it was this little jewel box of a restaurant in the West Village. But go back. How did you get to Simon? So I got to Simon because one of the managers that I had worked with at Marea, uh, who's lovely, um, you know, we were all let go in this large sweep. And he also landed at Piora. And he called me and said that I needed you know, he needs a wine director and he couldn't think of anyone better than me. And so I already, you know, felt comfortable that there was this person I trusted at this restaurant. And he, he was saying that it was nothing like the other places we've worked. Trust me, it's a good place. And when I walked in, I, I knew that was true. Uh, you know, Simon didn't look at my resume and, you know, he wasn't obsessed with, he wasn't obsessed with the things that didn't matter. He cared about hospitality. He cared about making people happy. I mean, he really had a restaurant because he liked being in a restaurant and he's an owner that was, that worked the floor every night. I mean, that's unheard of every place I'd worked before I'd met the owner maybe once or twice or seen them a few times in my tenure. Uh, you know, they were off somewhere counting their money and not there listening and being with their staff and team and so I knew right away that this was somewhere I wanted to be, and I still work for Simon today. Right. Um, so that was Peora. Um, it is it fair to say it's the first time that when you went looking for a job, besides them sizing you were up, sizing you up, you were sort of sizing them up. Like, is this right for me? Is this where I want to be? Are they showing me what I want to do? And Simon did that for you. Yeah, I think, you know, beforehand, I was incredibly insecure. And I thought that I didn't deserve anything but maybe abuse in a toxic environment. And I normalized it. But being able to step back and take the time to slowly think about what I wanted and what I deserved, what everyone deserves, was healthy. And that's the first time I did that at Piora. And I'm so glad I did. And I didn't just rush into another toxic environment. So... I cut you off when you said you walked in and it was a jewel box of a restaurant. Um, Simon impressed you. The environment was right. Um, but also the people that were there, there's some good stories, you know, about the people you met at Peora and how they're still around you now. Um, talk to me a little about that, how Peora ended, and then get me into coat. Yeah. So, you know, Pure was such a small, beautiful team. And one person there that probably made the biggest impression besides Simon, of course, was someone who started as a food runner named uh, Wesley, uh, also from Korean heritage. And he just loved restaurants. And I recognized in him something I also saw in myself and sort of this bright eyed, bushy tailness that you right. first get when you enter an industry you love and you just want to soak up everything like a sponge. 
And so, you know, Wesley and I started doing wine classes together and he was just, you know, he's the sweetest and he would set up before class and bring his little notebook and each week come with great questions. And he made his way up quite quickly, actually, from food runner to bar back to server. And then right when Pure was about to close, there were a lot of issues financially with the place that I go in, you know, further detail there. And and sometimes that has to happen. You have to fail, I think, in order to later succeed. And Simon's dream was to always open up this Korean steakhouse restaurant, something that combined the fat cat New York steakhouses with his heritage of Korean barbecue. And so, you know, he chose myself to run the beverage program. And then he chose Wesley to be kind of the manager and the front of house guy. And that's amazing. Think, <laughs> he was it was like, amazing. Wesley was like a little Victoria, right? <laughs> or a little Simon too. I mean, I yeah, think, a, a hybrid, <laughs> which is a good hybrid. Well, I mean, I think one of the most rewarding things in restaurants is when you finally have a position of power and it can be even being a server or being a chef or being a sommelier, being able to give back and, I was in a position that pure as the wine director and I was able to give back to Wesley and Simon was able to give back and, and make him and myself both partners in Coke Korean Steakhouse and part owners. And it was just incredible. The first time I think I saw Wesley in a suit, I think I cried. That's nice. Yeah. If you go to the uh, coat page, you know, there's a whole listing of everyone who works there with descriptions. You are there, Simon, Wesley, you know, it's nice to see that. Um, let's talk about code for a second. Um, you and I were talking off air and New York is about to reopen restaurants on a limited basis. So tell me a few things. How has code operated during the last five, six months during the pandemic, you know, and now what happened, what are you doing and what happens when things open up? Yeah. The last seven months have been some of the hardest ever. Torture. I think that, you know, we were one of the few restaurants that stayed open the entire time from delivery and takeout to now starting tomorrow, we're opening uh, indoor dining at 25%. And, you know, the reason we did that or the reason we all decided upon that was that we didn't want to lose each other. And Simon could have furloughed the entire team. And maybe if it was a bigger restaurant group, that would have made sense. I think, you know, every restaurant group has to decide what's almost, best for them. Almost forced to. Almost forced to, but, you know, he decided instead to keep all of his management team on, which, as you can imagine, is incredibly expensive when your revenue drops from $12 million a year to nothing. So, you know, he even set up a fund for the staff and out of his own pocket paid them a small stipend each week. And this is the hourly team members, everyone from the dishwashers to the servers for as long as he could. It, that's that's rare. And, you know, in order to keep that alive, we had to bring in some sort of revenue. So we quickly pivoted. I think that one of the great things about our team is that it's full of creative and smart individuals. And Simon has built us up to have so much confidence. Um, and we just really pivoted quickly and we made it uh, doable, even though it was incredibly challenging and it was not without its dark times. And I think we all had a few, you know, breakdowns during right. it. But we always had each other, at least. And that's something I think that is very special. And I know that one of Simon's fears, one of my fears, was that if we had closed, like we had maybe closed Pure together, which is a very sad thing, 
maybe we wouldn't have reopened or maybe we would have, but we would have lost the team, the core members. And honestly, what makes Coat so special is not the food and it's not the wine, although those things are both great. It's the, it's the people and you can't replicate that. Yeah. And if we couldn't bring those people back, I don't know what Coat would be today. It seems like, you know, Simon did all the right things and, you know, in the long run, It'll, you know, pay off, you know, hopefully when things resume normalcy. Um, You mentioned earlier that, you know, it's about a 1,200 bottle wine list. Is that selections or total bottles? Selections. Okay, so that's a pretty big deal. But, you know, we're not talking about fancy Burgundies and Bordeaux, which makes it, you know, Harry's value to this value. But tell me a little about the list. I know you focus on, you know, smaller producers' stories, you know, which influenced you. Um, And you have this thing with magnums. Talk to me about both of those things. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our... We're so lucky that we have a platform at Coat, you know, this Michelin starred restaurant that's been James Beard nominated for our wine list now two years in a row. And, you know, we, when you have this, uh, when you're on this platform, you know, we really wanted to do something with it. So, you know, our wine list focuses on farmers, producers who are committed to uh, biodynamic, sustainable practices. And also we try to lift up marginalized groups like like women and black indigenous persons of color when possible. But, you know, more important than all of that is that we feel that wine should really, it should be delicious and it should speak to a sense of place, you know, whether you're looking to spend $50 or $5,000, you know, we can help you find something that's great. And why magnums? I know why, but tell everybody. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, part of the convivial atmosphere of Coat and the large party size of Korean barbecue and steakhouse is is that you have large groups of people. And, you know, sure, of course, magnums are inherently impressive, but they also keep the wine younger and fresher for longer since there's less overall exposure to the effects of oxygen through the cork. And so if you taste the same wine in a 750 milliliter bottle next to a magnum, the magnum actually tastes better. And, you know, it's easy to do in theory, just stock up your wine list with lots of magnums. But in reality, it's actually very hard to do. I have to go directly to these producers and get these bottlings just for us because we pour everything by the glass out of magnums in large formats. So when you come into Coat, you know that not only are you drinking the best possible wine by the glass, but also it's bottled specifically for us. And so you're really getting a sense of place and you're getting the highest quality, which I think Oftentimes, wines by the glass are often an afterthought or a way for big companies to kind of cash in. So, you know, we really wanted to take that seriously and give someone, even if they're ordering a $12 glass of wine, the best possible experience. And of course, also they can order that $5,000 Magnum too if they want. Right. It's sort of that great uh, highbrow, lowbrow. All right. So you convinced me and you made me very thirsty. We talked about how code is opening up. Um, If I, as a, you know, consumer want to, you know, get into code, what do I do? Do I go to a resi or open table? You know, do I call directly, you know, people as New York restaurants are opening, people are going to, you know, morph back into getting out. What's the best way for them to do it for code? 
Yeah, at Coat, you can go on our website to make reservations. Uh, if you don't see the time slot or party size you want there, you can always give us a call. Uh, we have reservationists on staff to take your call and, and see what we can do. The best thing you can do is come in with, you know, at least three or four people. So you can taste everything, drink as much yes. as possible. <laughs> right. And um, yeah, I think supporting restaurants right now is so important. important. Not the just food coat, options are them. as interesting <laughs> as the... Um the wine options um that's what makes that place amazing all right listen we can't finish discussing the book um without an important person and time in your life and you know with all the effed up you know stuff you had with men and growing up um you met a wonderful guy named lyle and just give me a little quick story there you know when you met him <laughs> and i you know you guys are recently got married in an interesting place. You know, let's talk about that a little. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this isn't uh, a French novel. I thought it had to have, have a happy ending. Um, and I, you know, I'm very fortunate that I, you know, did meet Lyle, you know, he's one of the first men that, uh, treated me with respect and love and, uh, you know, also shared the same interest in wine I do. He works for Kermit Lynch, wine merchant. Uh, the best. <laughs> pretty great, um, selling wine. And he also makes wine with his brother in California. And, you know, one of the things that first struck me about Lyle when, I, when we had our first date together, I thought he was going to pull out this super fancy bottle. I mean, he works for arguably one of the best importers that – imports, you know, bottles, everything from Almond to Clap to Cocherie and Raveneau. And so I thought he was going to pull out this really expensive, fancy bottle to try and impress me. But he didn't. Instead, he pulled out Domaine de la Tourvier Collier Rouge, which is, you know, maybe $20, $25 retail. It's this red wine from the south of France where the Pyrenees Mountains fall into the Mediterranean Sea. It's French Catalonia. And it's a wine that's not expensive, but speaks to a sense of place and is beautiful and and I realized that we were both shared this same view of of how wine can bring people together how it can be restorative and, and amazing and so we fell in love and we dated for a few years and then he proposed um during our last book tour together we uh, had the rosé book together and then we got married a year later uh, in Piedmont in the Northwest in Italy, where my mother's family is from. And uh, the Countess's family? The Countess's family. And, and it, it described the place a little frescoes, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, and there, it's a there beautiful some, place. There's a, is there a picture in the book? I forgot. There is the last At page. the end, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's worth looking at. Um, <laughs> and Lyle is also an illustrator and did illustrations for the Rose book, right? Yes, he did all the illustrations for Drink Pink, which is also published by HarperCollins. And, you know, it was it's so interesting when you work with someone, a significant other on a project together, it can either make or break you. Uh, I'm very type A and like things done right away. And yeah, and he's, so it worked uh, out. <laughs> he's, he's an artist. So he, you know, waited until the last minute to do all the drawings. And it actually, you know, it drove me crazy for a bit, but then it brought us closer together. Yeah, I remember reading that in the book because <laughs> you are such a perfectionist. It did drive you crazy. All right, listen, a couple things. we got about 10 minutes left. I want to jump into our wine list because, you know, I'm as much curious about, you know, what you're drinking as anyone. So I want to do that. And then when we're done with that, I want to just talk a little about, you know, wine empowered and then we'll wrap everything up. So let's jump right into the wine list. Um, 
I asked my guests the same five questions. We've asked over 200 people these questions. I post them on social media. Our listeners are very interested, you know, in getting uh, intel from guys like you. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What, what are you tasting for yourself, the restaurant? What's in the fridge? What's seasonal doing to you? What, what are you sipping? Yeah, absolutely. I think with the change of seasons now, I'm drinking a lot of chilled reds, uh, kind of the in-between uh, summer, fall season. And Get specific. Um, Tell me a couple of the chilled reds that you're drinking. You know, it could be region or even, you know, the maker. Yeah, I think right now, one of my favorite wines that kind of goes with everything and so savory is uh, Tuscan Red Sangiovese, of course. Um, we love producers like Sesti, Villa di Giagiano, um, Mocali, Poggio de Soto, Isola Elena. Um, you know, some of these wines are expensive and some of them are dirt cheap. And that's kind of right. the beauty of it. Uh, it's also incredibly delicious with steak. So we have quite a few at the restaurant. All right. So... The next question was favorite wine and food pairing. I mean, since my Not family- something you eat every night, you know, but no. something that, you know, I mean, you sort of alluded to it with Sangiovese and steak, but that could be one answer. What else? So, I mean, you know, since my family is from a little bit further north in, in Piedmont in Italy, I think one of my favorite food pairings that's almost transformative is uh, Nebbiolo with Vitello Tonato, which is this weird dish that in I know. theory- <laughs> Describe it quickly. Yeah, it's a, you know, cold veal that's like pressed super thin and it's topped with, um, you know, a tuna mayonnaise sauce. And you're thinking like tuna mayonnaise on cold veal sounds weird and disgusting. But then when you have it, it's for some reason like savory and mineral and delicious. And then when you have it with a nice chilled glass of this very savory, earthy Nebbiolo, um, and for me, that's the definition of what grows together, goes together and a sense of place. Those yeah. two things are just incredibly historic and traditional and they can only work together. And that's why they're so beautiful. Classic Northern Italian. Now, like Sangiovese, Nebbiolo is the grape and you can make Barolo, Barbaresco, Asti, Alba. What are we talking about, you know, with Nebbiolo? Any of those or? Yeah, any of those for sure. I mean, I think that with, uh, you know, simple country food like Vitello Tonato, um, you know, the more humble, the better. And you can have a Longhi Nebbiolo from Giuseppe Vira. You can have even a fancy, you know, Barolo or Barbaresco from Bruno Giacosa. But uh, I think, again, the beauty of this region is that there are both. That's a good one. Um, I know you work a lot of hours, um, but do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar or a few, I would think probably in New York, where they do what you do, which is have a great wine selection, an interesting wine selection, people that are knowledgeable and enthusiastic, just a great environment? I mean, do you see other places that carry that torch? Yeah, I think so. I mean, two of my favorites, the first for sure is King, which is, you know, ironically run by three women. Yes. And uh, they have a great wine list and program run by Annie Shi. And uh, again, it's this place that they have wine and food that, you know, goes together, that really carries a sense of place. It's it's Southern Italian, um, or rather, it's more sort of coastal Italian and Southern French 
in style and it's just really lovely. And I think that all the wines that Annie chooses, they really have a lot of dignity and they stand for something. It's just, it's really lovely. And um, also very across popular. the Very popular. And then just across the street is, uh, you know, Ariel Arce's Niche Niche and Special Club, which I think she does a great job there bringing in other people and using her platform to really highlight, you know, black indigenous persons of color and other marginalized, marginalized groups. And although she is super brilliant, she, you know, uses her platform uh, to really highlight others. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I agree with you on both. Um, uh, Ariel has been on the show. She was also gracious enough to invite me to do one of the wine nights there, which I'm sure you did too. Yeah. Um, way back when things were normal. Um, all right. Fourth question. Favorite all-time wine. I initially, and I tell this every week, I initially put this question on to get you know, the Victorious to tell me what was the rarest, most expensive wine, you know, that you ever drank. I don't care about that. And you may have answered the question. So I'm going to need a second one. What's the wine that was the most important to you that, you know, had an effect on you that still resonates, you know, that's memorable. I can answer two things from the book and you certainly the wine Lyle, you know, poured for you. And, you know, you had an awakening with Amarone. So if, I answered the question, expand. If there's others, go. <laughs> yeah, the wine I had with Lyle was certainly special and will always hold a you know place in my heart. I think one of the go-to wines I just always have a fine, fondness for, and if there's one wine I can maybe drink forever, it's Domaine Tampier Bandol Rosé. Uh, of course, because you know I wrote the book on rosé and I spent a lot of time studying different styles, but for me, you know, this wine is, there's so much more to it than just the wine. And, you know, it's the, the owner, the owner, Lulu Pay Road is 102 now, you know, beyond a centurion, legendary, legendary. And, uh, you know, she, there are people who have gone to her, these sort of pilgrimages. If you're in the wine and food world, you have to go and see her and, and study with her, especially her cooking, you know, Alex Waters from Chez Panisse and Richard Olney and of course, Kermit Lynch all went here to kind of, you know, learn what it was all about. And to me, she embodies that Provencal lifestyle, but also, you know, this joie de vivre of like, wine is supposed to be fun and it brings people together and it's restorative. And, you know, uh, having a glass of her rosé, which is delicious and made in this biodynamic method next, you know, with her uh, bouillabaisse that's distinctly, you know, Marseille influenced uh, this small little Mediterranean that fishing village. Good. It's, it's incredible. Good. And we're not going to get into it, but, you know, rosé certainly goes beyond sitting at the pool in the summer. And this is a perfect example of that kind of rosé, right? Definitely. You can certainly have it by the pool, but you can also yeah, have no. it in the dead right. of winter, too. <laughs> like you said, with a bully, hearty bouillabaisse. base. Mm -hmm. All right, Victoria, last question. And I think you could handle this one. Um, I want you to recommend the best wine around 15, 20 bucks. I want you to recommend a red or a white. You can give me specific makers, regions like Muscadet. Um, I always say my kids are in their 20s. They can't bring a crappy supermarket wine as a gift or to a dinner or party, but they can't afford 40 bucks. So how are they wowing everybody at 15, 20, 22? Give me a white and a red. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is so much value in German Rieslings. And I know every sommelier in the world will say that, but it really is is true. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of quality there. It doesn't necessarily have to be sweet, for example. Um, Carl Lowen's a great producer. Reinhold Bell Lowen for me. L-O-E-W-E-N. Carl Lowen. Okay. Um, you got another maker you like? Of course. I mean, you can go with classics like Keller, for example, right. which is who in the makes some make some good value oriented. All right. So for the white, I agree 100%. Riesling, and I do agree it's a Psalm favorite. Give me a red. Yeah. You know, another place that offers crazy value um, is Spanish reds, for sure. Um, everyone knows the big regions, of course, Rioja, Priorat, but especially in the Northwest in like uh, Bierzo, there's really a lot of great value, uh, Galicia, Ribera, Sacra, etc. Uh, so, you know, one of uh, my favorites um, within there is, uh, you know, Raul Perez makes a lot of great um, Menthea-influenced Bierzo wines. Uh, Does he make really Altrea? Great. Is that him? He makes the Altrea, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a little more, but that's That's great. a little more, but that's yeah. great. All right, so those are great answers. We got to wrap up quickly, but I don't want to leave without you telling me um, about Wine Empowered, an organization you founded with a couple of other women that you happen to work with. Um, in light of you know the world, the pandemic, all the protests, everything you've been through, you started this organization, Wine Empowered. What is it to do what? Yeah, so we founded Wine Empowered in 2018. We started our inaugural class this year. Wine Empowered, we uh, um, aim to diversify the wine industry by offering tuition-free wine classes to women and persons of color in hospitality. And so myself and Amy Zhou and Cynthia Chang, two other female sommeliers, them from Chinese heritage, really didn't see ourselves reflected in uh, the wine world. And so, you know, we realized the biggest barrier was education. So we started this 501c3 nonprofit called Wine Empowered, and unfortunately, the middle of our first class was cut short due to the pandemic, but we hope to restart shortly. And, you know, this inaugural group of 22 students, they had to go through an application process, referral process, interview process. And we really got these whip smart, curious people that I believe will change the hospitality industry. And the more voices we have from different backgrounds in our world, uh, the better and the more inclusive it can be. So on a go forward basis, hopefully things will continue and you'll continue to do classes. If people want more info, where should they go? You can go to wine-empowered.com or follow us on Instagram at Wine Empowered. Okay. All right, Victoria, we got to wrap up. Um, just answer this question and I'm going to do a quick show wrap up. Um, do you think writing the book was more of a reclamation for you or an F you to others or both? I think that it was definitely more of a reclamation, but more than that, I think it was a call to action. Uh, I hope Meaning, other women, okay. I, hope, I hope other women will read my book and realize there's value in telling their truth and their stories and that together we can fight for more social justice. I agree, and I agree that the book isn't just Wine Girl, but it's Girl. You know, it's about being a woman and all of that. And I think that, 
you know, that is very important. I highly recommend it. I don't think it's just for women. I think guys should read it. I'm going to make my wife read it because I think she'll enjoy it. Um, so we'll get to that in a second. Here's our wrap-up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, on Instagram at SBenRuby, and on Twitter, Twitter at BenRuby. A little confusing, but use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. As I mentioned, we'll post, Vic, post Victoria's wine list on our social media sites. Um, Victoria, where can we get the book? Wherever they sell books? Wherever books are sold. Any, I know this got cut short, but you got great notices in between. Any appearances in person or virtual? Uh, I will be uh, this uh, upcoming Sunday at 9 p.m. at the Brooklyn Book Fest um, okay. with uh, Dr. Jessica B. Harris and Priya Krishna and James wow. Berthwell. Wow, uh, heck of so, a lineup. Yeah, please tune in. All right. Um, and I just wanted to say National Orange Wine Day has now expanded to Virtual Orange Wine Week, October 5th through October 10th. If you're interested in or love orange wine, go to www.nationalorangewineday.org for more info. Um, thank you to our guest, Victoria James. Good luck with the book. Thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.